the inside. She got the scoop on the ones to watch, on the ones that's hot. No one can do it quite like Caroline. Caroline. No one can do it quite like Caroline. It's time for Caroline. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Hyper Caroline Hobby. I am your host, Caroline Hobby. I know music, I know people, and I know the questions you want to ask. So let's get hyper. Heads up, these are adults having adult conversations, so there could be adult content. I am super pumped that Marcus Hummond is joining me today. He grew up as a citizen of the world, living in the Philippines, Italy, Africa. He has written huge hits for Alabama, Tim McGraw. He wrote Born to Fly for Sarah Evans, her breakout hit, as well as Dixie Chicks, Cowboy Take Me Away, my favorite song ever, and Ready to Run. He won a Grammy for Best Country Song when he wrote God Bless the Broken Road and Roscoe Flatts recorded it in 2005. He's also married to an incredible woman named Becca, and she started Thistle Farms, and their mission is to be a sanctuary for healing for women survivors of abuse, addiction, trafficking, and prostitution. I'm telling you, Marcus is one of the most interesting people I know. I'm so excited for y'all to hear this interview. His insight on life is just incredible. So y'all get excited. Here's Marcus Hummond. Hello, Marcus Hummond. Hello, friend. Come to talk to you again. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, looky there. I love it. You and song are just hand in hand. Yep, just all old songs, though. Okay, we got to put this on your mouth. Okay, on my mouth. Yes, there it is. yes, yeah. right okay. there to okay. your lips. Okay. I know. A lot of lips have touched that. William Michael know, Morgan yeah. touched it yesterday. Yeah, I'm going to stay away from it. <laughs> <laughs> did, he, did he really? Yeah. I bet that was fun. Yeah, because he was celebrating his number one. It was awesome. Yeah, and they got a lot to celebrate. They do. Engagements. Engagement. How about that? Which also, oh let's get right into it because I have a few questions I want to start off with sure. a little rapid fire. But yeah. speaking of William Michael Morgan being engaged to Jennifer Wayne, yes. she's a part of Runaway June. Yes. She's also, they're going to be featured on this podcast soon. Wonderful. <clears throat> You and I actually had a little bit of That's it. I right. had a hand in it too, but it was mainly your genius. Wrote one of their songs they just cut, "Blue Roses." Yeah, we're both of us are really excited because because you were part of the genesis of that group, really. And yeah, you were there at the time, and, and we did a demo part. together, and you were killing it on the demo. I got to tell you, I love <laughs> I love Hannah. I love Hannah so much. But uh, that demo, you really did a great job. It was fun to get to sing that. Yeah, even and though I can't sing low harmonies. Well. <laughs> You say that. That's the thing you say. You can, you're a great when you have a great teacher. You can sing. <laughs> but they did it at the uh, they did it at the Opry, mm -hmm. and uh, it was particularly beautiful that night. Oh you my know, gosh! The place was packed, and they got up there, and um, you know, it's such a that particular song is so country, um, and kind of bluegrassy, and and leaning towards what they do, what they're you know, they're like I, I guess I was reading maybe it was something you said that. It's the first female trio, correct, to break in the ten top years. 30 in 10 years. Since the Dixie Chicks. Which is unbelievable. And, and oh my gosh, talk about the Dixie Chicks. Yeah. You obviously have a thing for female trios who have some folk, root, soul, yes. because you wrote a ton of the Dixie Chicks songs. Two of my favorites. Well, Ready I, to run. I wrote a bunch of them, but they only cut two. But they cut. Well, they cut two great ones. Two zingers. But Ready to want, run. Uh -huh. And my favorite song of all times. Yeah, Cowboy Take Me Away. Oh, yeah. You know, that song, like, imprinted me. 
I didn't, but it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to know. <laughs> you know, like a little bird, but if you take it way. from its mom, it imprints you, I guess. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> yeah, it literally like imprinted my life. Cowboy yeah. Take Me Away was my jam when I was in high school. It was yeah. my favorite song. Dixie yeah. Chicks were everywhere. Yeah, they were special. You know, they were um, they were probably as good a group um, as I have known. And, you know, I've been in the business now for 30 years. 30 and, years, but you're mm, only 45. Mm, yeah, sure, I'm only 45. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the sound of 45 now. That just sounds, it's funny because that sounds so, so young now. I know you're looking at like 45. You're like, oh, man, that would be like I'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> no, time flies. I really, time, I can't really believe flies. I'm already 33. I remember yeah. when I moved to town at 19. It feels like God, yesterday. So young, it's so wonderful. Enjoy it. <laughs> I am enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. But forties are forties are good though. I tell you, I'm in my fifties now. But I will say, I think the forties were were really great. It's kind of an interesting time in a person's life. You know? What is that time like? I think you know. You just. I think you. It's cliched a little bit, but like you know, you know yourself better. Um, you're aimed at what you're aimed at in life, I think. If you're not, you, like, trying out a million things I don't anymore. think you're—usually you're not. And if you've found your partner in life, um, usually, you know, all of that has settled, and, and you kind of—I think you're looking more for sort of the richness of that experience as opposed to, you know, your eyeballs are swinging around in your head. And, <laughs> you know, that's all gone, you know, really. I mean, that's kind of past. And um, and by that time, if, you, if you're in a marriage— um, if you you know if you're fortunate enough to have a, a a good marriage or whatever you then you've got kids and then it, everything takes a different shape anyway because that's a time that the kids are growing up and it's kind of a wonderful period you know it's it's a you just um every day is pretty exciting and the 50s aren't bad it's just that you get in the 50s and the kids that you love so much are starting to go to school <laughs> and leave home and then you're they're turning into adults they're adults and if your folks are alive you know they're um you know they're really old and they're in some cases struggling and that's what and that's, that's what I'm going oh, through and I'm I know sorry. but a lot of us in our 50s I mean that's when it happens for the most part that's like my wife lost her tragically really lost her parents um many years ago how, how tragically well a, an illness and a and a she wasn't and prepared a, yeah and her dad died in a, a car accident and was killed by a drunk driver oh, so man. she uh yeah so she didn't um she hasn't grown uh older you know with parents you know but uh, anyway but i mean i'm very thankful that my folks are still alive but yeah 50s is 50s different you know just kind of settle in for it <laughs> so really enjoy the 40s enjoy everything but enjoy yes enjoy every the, step of the way enjoy it all but enjoy the 40s and don't be afraid i guess m more to the point don't be afraid of the 40s 40s will be good i'm excited about that yeah okay so you're talking I, I want to, of course, go back. But since you mentioned this, you're yeah. talking about having a spouse that you really yes. have a beautiful relationship with. You and Becca mm -hmm. are amazing. And your wife is a preacher. Is yes. that what we call it? A preacher? She's a she's a priest. She's an Episcopal priest. But yeah, she does preach. Um, but that's she actually, that's her job. She's the uh, Episcopal chaplain at Vanderbilt. That's one of her jobs. And then the thing that she's kind of, in some ways most well known for is she started a residential program for women who've suffered lives of trafficking um, through the prison system initially and that program called Magdalene was different because it was the two years was different and this sort of idea of radical hospitality was different and now there's many many cities in America that are trying actually bringing her in to consult 
and figure out why did that, why has that worked? Why um, has it worked? Well, a lot of it has to do with that. Ultimately, she created a social entrepreneurial company um, called Thistle Farms, and which the, is amazing. Which is amazing, and the reason, and now that's the largest social entrepreneurial in the country. Uh, for women with a history of traffic, and they who've make been products like natural products, yes, like they lotions, do. beautiful and lip products, chapsticks, and yeah. all sorts of incredible things, yeah. candles. Yeah, <clears throat> and, and it gives women jobs who gives have them jobs and a living wage. You know, it's not just about a wage; it's about a roof and a car and reconciling with families. and And I think it it part of that happened because she was building this uh, two year residential program. Was had some different ideas about um, how community can help. Uh, women be released from the cycle of sexual abuse as kids. All of you know this is 100% the community that that she works with, and and then uh, the cycle of being in prison and being out of the street and the back. You know, averaging 75 arrests. You know, really chronic. Each and, person is mm-hmm, averaging yeah, yeah. 75 arrests mm, that she yeah. helps with, because I guess once you get in the cycle, it's just hard to break That's it. That's right. You know, these are kids. I mean, this is you know what it looks like. It looks like um, abused probably before the age of eight, usually by someone close to you. Uh, it means you're on the street between 14 and 16 years old, and then you're then you're trafficked, and then you're... And, and the, so does the, traffic mean like you're sold for sex? Yeah, prostitution, but it also, there's a, there's a one-to-one relationship between that and uh, addiction, you know, because... Of course. Once yeah. you get in there, I'm sure addiction's following right behind. Yeah, or leading you there. Yeah. It, sometimes it comes the other way that, you know, it's it's how you... Hope. It's how the pimp's going to give you, you know, your crack or whatever it is. I mm-hmm. mean, it's an awful, it's just unbelievable. But it's everywhere. It's all over the world, but it's also every in every city in America. And a lot of people don't know that, you know, but it is. And so she she leaned into that. How did she decide to lean into that? Because that's a big lean. Well, you know, she's written several books on the subject. And uh, she's been very public about it. So I, you know, I would not ordinarily say this, but... Um, she uh, suffered abuse when her dad died by someone in the church when she was very young, and this went on for a while, but instead of uh, sexual abuse, and instead of it kind of breaking her or sending her the way of the very people that she works with, the sisterhood that is Magdalene, that is Thistle Farms, um, and it could have. And I think she's always been real, real clear about that, you know, that there's not a lot of difference. There really is no difference, you know. It's just... It's just people. What was that know. song? Uh, Drugs or Jesus? Like Tim McGraw said, uh, yeah. kind of. There's two roads sometimes when you have a hard decision. Yeah. Not drugs, but obviously, I don't know if that's a good comparison. Well, but your point of you know that we're all it's on a, you know it's um it's fragile. Very fragile. People's lives are fragile, and and it we're easily broken. Um, but you know you can be it can come back together. You know she, I think for her it led her um to be really focused on healing herself that. and others. And as long as I've known her, I mean, I, I, you know, I met her and I moonlighted at Divinity School uh, years ago, and that's how I met Becca. Um, and she was that way, I mean, she was that way at 25 years old. I'm telling you what. I mean, She's I, had a mission to heal. Yeah, I mean, the first date we had, I remember where <laughs> I met this girl, right? So I'm in Nashville, and I'm trying to get a record deal, and I have a publishing deal, and I, I was thinking, you know, I gotta just, I need to meet, I need to be with some people that kind of come from a, a little more similar cultural background. Because uh, you grew up as a citizen of the world. Well, I grew up overseas and my folks. In a million different places. A lot like of the places. Philippines. Yeah. Where else did you live? 
Well, I lived in Tanzania. Uh, so I should backtrack. My dad, uh, his work was in international economic development. So, you know, the United States has embassies all over the world. And in uh, what we used to call the third world, now you call, I think, the developing world. But um, part of our national interest in relationships with other countries is that we want to help and uh, to pass back and forth economic um, um, know-how and, you know, we want to be involved in development. Uh, and, in, you know, in other cases, there are places where America is, seems, you know, very concerned to have, for example, military. Um, and all of all of the places that we, um, you know, uh, that we're in relationship with, diplomatic relations, we have an ambassador. So dad's interest, my dad's interest was economics and economic development. You know, he wanted That's awesome. To, so we lived in Tanzania and then we lived in Nigeria um, and then the Philippines, right when the Marcoses came in, um, the Marcoses, Marcos, Ferdinand oh, Marcos. and Imelda Marcos, yeah. And then uh, we actually, Dad worked uh, was in a political appointment uh, during the Carter administration, the Jimmy Carter administration. That's when you moved to D.C. And that's when actually we moved to Saudi Arabia. So we lived Whoa. in Saudi Arabia in '76 and '77, and part of '78. And I, um, I couldn't go to school in the kingdom. Because they didn't allow, after ninth grade, expatriate kids were not allowed to go to school in Saudi Arabia unless you went to a um, a school, an Islamic school. And so I had a choice to either take correspondence courses at home, which I tried for a little bit, but that was kind of goofy. <laughs> and then the only other choice was I had to leave home. How so old I went, you? I was 16, I turned 17 in Italy. Um, Gosh, so, Marcus. And you got to remember, those are the days. It wasn't like there was no cell phone. Or I remember when I got to Rome, I went to you school. You went to school in Rome? I did. I went to. I actually went to Notre Dame International, which is a high school um, that is run by the same Brothers of Holy Cross that run Notre Dame University, even though I happen to not be Roman Catholic, but I uh, that was a fantastic school. And it's one of these schools, international schools that... And, of course, I grew up in international schools where you'll have American curriculum and you'll have like half the the kids at the school will be whatever the, the country is. So they're half the kids are Italian and the other half are kids from all, literally all over the world, you know, who are looking for a great school. Many Americans, folks with Exxon and, you know, it might be with Lockheed, uh, it might be State Department people, all kinds of people. But um, it's really an it's kind of a crazy thing. It's incredibly crazy. But I went there for a year, uh, and then my dad was restationed back to the United States. And so we went back, and I actually never I never lived abroad again. My parents lived in Botswana for many years. So they love Africa. They love Africa. And I traveled to Botswana a fair amount, and, and I'm still, through our church, I'm still in relationship with a um, an organization, actually a hospice in Botswana that, um, and we raise money for them. We have a thing called the greatest show ever we do every year, which is a, a night of impersonations. I host it. It's for dead artists and dead careers. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So Marcus. we have, sadly, we have a lot of new, uh, new, new folks who've oh, added to the lineup. I know. I know. I'm going to do Leonard Cohen though. Okay. Yeah. I got oh. I got to do Leonard. I just need to like backtrack just a sure. little bit. What did you gather from living in all of these different countries with all of these different cultures and such a pivotal point of your life when you're developing? Like, obviously, you're 
preteen teen, and teen and you're yeah. living in all of these different cultures what is that like and what did that do to your thought process i don't know i mean that's big those are big, those are good questions are big questions i mean um probably uh well probably an appreciation of diversity you know um when you have a lot of friends who are you have friends who are muslims you have friends who are you know buddhists you have friends who are you know can it can break along nationalities it can break along race you know you have friends who are italian you have friends who are africans you have friends you know you just sort of that's the world that actually is there and so you live in that and you're, you're all just humans yeah and you're proud of your country you're proud to represent your country because my folks used to say that used to say you know should remember you're representing your country but like to give you an example like when we lived in saudi arabia I mean, my mom, she's like from a small town in Michigan, and, you know, she was studying Arabic, you know, in a country that uh, in the 70s and now that has, by Western standards, you know, there are laws towards women, you know, were not, that wasn't a a pretty sight. You know, she wasn't allowed to drive. Really? No, she couldn't wear a, she had to, her skirts had to have long her dresses had to be long-sleeved, had to be down to her ankles. Did she wear something over her head? Um, I, she had scarves, but, you know, she didn't have to do like a hijab or whatever, baya, we call them covered, like her. Yeah, basically just Westerners, you know, um, but what that tells you is that, you know, um, my folks really gave me a sense that, you know, we were guests in host countries and that we should be respectful as we could, you know, uh, of other people's traditions and their cultures. And so I guess that, I mean, that's certainly one thing and that, you know, affected me. I think musically, I already had parents who were kind of, um, you know, I grew up, my parents listened to, oh, God. I mean, they had so much folk music. I mean, it was all like, you know, Bob Dylan and the, I don't know, Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and all this stuff. And then they listened to classical music. They were way, you know, they had met in choir, so they listened to a lot of choral music. And then they were, they were bonkers over Broadway music. So, <laughs> well, you've they really also were. written six Broadway musicals, which is uh, insane. Well, I haven't been on Broadway, but I've been, on, I've done off Broadway. But stuff, you've but written, I've written six music. musicals. I've written musicals, and three have and, been on off Broadway, right? Yeah, and I've written. I've you've also into, wrote an opera. <laughs> wrote an opera for National Opera Company. And you also wrote a children's book, and you've also yeah. done a documentary. I mean, there, yeah, your Still creativity is overflowing from you. Yeah, well, you know, you having fun. You know, it's uh, well, you're part just of the a fun very creative person, and you're very smart too. Like that's the thing about you. Yeah. I've gotten a chance to write <laughs> songs with you and like be around yeah. you now for yeah. years. Something about the way that you were raised, like like maybe what you said, like mm. you understand diversity and you appreciate it. Mixed with how smart you are, mixed with your love of folk and very mm. good lyric lyrical music with great melodies, the way you write songs is literally unlike anything I've ever experienced. Well, that's really sweet of you to say that. And we've and you and I we've we've had some uh, we've done some music together too. That's one. I love doing really music great. with and you. I, you know, I don't know your how your fans you know, but I'm sure they know this about you. But you're a very very good musician. That's yes, not are. true. <laughs> That is true. You have a beautiful voice. Thank you. And you have a great sense of music. That's well, when I'm with a great teacher, like I said you before. You said you struggle with, you know, harmony is a funny thing, you know, because I'm kind of a, I'm a harmony, I'm just nutso about harmonies. But You can hear like 17 different harmony parts. 
I don't know. I hear, you know, I started writing choral stuff. Um, one of the latest projects, uh, I was commissioned a couple years ago to write a cantata, so a passion cantata for the church. So the Episcopal Cathedral said, you know, we'll give you a few, some bucks. And I started working over at Belmont with this group called the Chamber Singers and Dr. Dean Ensminger. And, and um, I don't really read music except Nashville-style numbers, and, and I'm an ear player on piano and different instruments. Yeah, you play a lot of instruments. I play a few instruments, but I also got into this process. Because I was writing theater through the years, I started to get this idea that I, I wanted to do my own harmonies, my own, and then begin to think of it in terms of choral music. And so got into this process and built some relationships at a couple conservatories where I could send files where I would duplicate. I might sing four-part, you know, SATB, and then I would send, I would triple or quadruple Soprano, each Soprano, alto, tenor, yeah. bass, yeah, SATB. But, you know, I should say this, I, and I know this because right now I've been working with a 100-person choir at Belmont. Oh my and gosh, you're working with, with 100 people at mm, one time? We'd, last week we recorded something, and then this Friday we're going to finish. We're putting the other 50 kids in the room because we couldn't get all 100 in. And I'm working with the 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 conductor, arranger, professor, Dr. Jane Warren on this one. And she she's actually taken my uh, choral arrangement, which was transcribed at the Hart Conservatory. That's how I do it. Um, and then she has actually added some parts so that we could have true, you know, um, true soprano parts. So, for example, I mean, yeah, I can do SATB falsetto, and then early in the morning I sing bass, <laughs> and I'm a natural tenor, And uh, but that actually, you know, there is a range of singing that is, I can't do it. And because my my painting, you know, my colors, my paintbrush is just my voice. Mm -hmm. That's how I write. You know, I, I write by that. singing everything. And uh, spent a lot of time on it, you know. But it's a it's a super fun thing. And this just now this year we published uh, the National Church Episcopal Church has just released the, a book actually called The Passion. I called it The Passion. And Beck and I, my wife and I, wrote um, a little book about each of the f the six movements within the cantata. And then it attached to it is the 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 uh, CD itself. Dang. Uh, called The Passion, and CTMI X publisher, they put it out as an album. And then you can buy, like, the score. You can buy each, you know, so it's going to churches. and That's amazing. Because sometimes uh, a passion narrative or a passion is really something that is done at, on Palm Sunday. Because on Palm Sunday in the church, you know, you don't, you don't have an Easter song, although I added one anyway, you know, what the <laughs> heck, you know, get the guy out of the grave, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> but I, you know, I... Uh, it, it, in Paul, at Palm Sunday, it's it ends on the cross. That's it, right? right? So when we think of Lent, we think of the season of Jesus coming to Jerusalem, which of course ends in his in his death. And those famous stories: the Last Supper, uh, Gethsemane. You know uh, so much. Trials. Do you know so much? No, you know, you know what it really was, Caroline. It was really fun because when they asked me to do it. Of course, whenever I get offered something like that, I always just say yes, and then I kind of figure out how to do it. I love that. I yeah, love that I mean, philosophy. you know, might as well. I mean, otherwise, how are you going to have any fun? <laughs> but I thought it was fun to go back. You know, I'm not a big, big Bible reader. I'm not a... I, but you, you must know. have, like, a photographic memory because you pretty much know all the stories just no, from this little conversation I can tell. This little conversation is because that was two years ago, and and to do the piece, you know, I went back and... You had to you, learn your material. Well, I went back to the four Gospels and said, well... Um, it's like a libretto, right? It's like a, a, a script or okay. a, a lyric. If you, you know, like for a cantata, a cantata is just an extended work for voices and instruments. Okay. 
And so it's a 45-minute piece, you know. So I had to go back and kind of go, well, wait a minute. Okay, you know, what, both what, what does each gospel say about this occurrence? And, and how also, to make it into how music. How do I make it into music? Exactly. I mean, and, and, yeah. and who are the characters? Now let's think of them as characters. So you read it like you were studying a, a playwright. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. I love that. Well, it, it made for, and that was part of what I wanted to write about in that little book, is that I realized because I'd come out of theater now and because I was a roots writer, I mean, I write, if I'm writing country, folk, bluesy stuff is that it's, that's where your heart is yeah yeah and that's your like that's being like a populace like folk meaning vogue like of the people mm -hmm. so you think well okay so then you take that lens and you point that at lent and jesus and for me you know it's really really hard to write for some transcendent creature whose mind you can't fathom like god like god like looking at jesus in those terms as you write music mm-hmm but if you look at things like, um, if you look at Jesus and you say um, something like um, that, you know, if you think of Jesus as standing in Gethsemane and saying, and somebody, I guess, hearing it, right, in theory, because that's why they wrote it down, uh, he knows what's coming, and he says, let this cup pass for me, and goes through kind of some a thought process, which we have uh, written down for us in the Gospels, but then at the end of that says his process, he moves through his prayer and he says, but not your will, but not my will, but yours. So it, as a as a writer of theater and as a person, you know, who looks for emotion in a situation, I understand the emotion of what I think is being afraid. Right. I think, I, I don't think you say, let this cut past me unless you're maybe pretty clear that you know, the, one of the most brutal, oppressive nations ever, Rome, mm -hmm. is going to, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're in for some serious persecution. And so that to me is very, that, you can write to that. Yeah. I can write to that. You so know. you need a story. So how important mm -hmm. is faith in your music or in your life? I don't know. I mean, I guess about as important as anything I guess. I mean, I think about the term faith, um, you know, what do I have faith in? What do you um, have faith in? I don't know. Sort of uh, probably, I think fundamentally I would say I have faith that there's a loving God. I think that's probably kind of number Even one. Even in the world with all the chaos, how do yeah. you know there's a loving God? I do not. <clears throat> you just have decided to believe. Yes, and I also... Have you, know, you seen truth and signs of it? Yeah, oh sure, all the time. The, and the courage of people and the love that of one another and, and also in the beauty of the, you know, for, like, the, like the great hymn, For the Beauty of the Earth. Um, I see signs all the time. I see other things too. Um, and I also have, like a lot of people, like probably all of us, I have a lot of times where... Um, that faith is shaken or people refer to dark nights of the soul or that you're kind of in dialogue with it. Um, it's almost, to me, it's a little more, the way I interpret faith might be more like a choice. Okay. I choose to think of a loving God and for the most part, I believe, <laughs> I choose to believe that, you know, that, uh, that there is a, 
as Martin Luther King said, you know, the arc of history is bending towards justice. I, I choose to believe that even when sometimes it, your evidence would appear to the contrary. And um, that's good. I don't know how to put it differently. You I love know? that. I'm afraid it's a little... No, like, I love that. Like kind of oddly existential position no. without a lot of proof. <laughs> I think faith doesn't have a whole lot of proof sometimes. It's sometimes, a feeling. yeah. Okay, so you, I want to get back to your music a little bit. Yeah. So you grew up in all these amazing countries. Yeah. You're a citizen of the world. You understand diversity. You well, understand. appreciate it you anyway. Appreciate yeah. it. Your parents have this great musical catalog that they mm-hmm. listen to. You yeah. grow up playing instruments, writing songs. When did you start writing songs? How old were you? You know, it was it was sporadic. Um, I I can remember writing. Um, I don't know. I think I was eleven in Nigeria. It was the first time I ever did anything musical. Like a friend, I had a friend uh, who was Pakistani guy. Well, half Pakistani. His mom was English. Navid Bernie, and I remember he's a very good guitar player and he's a good singer. And he wanted uh, to form a band. So. I like to play drums, so we had all these. But when I say drums, it wasn't a drum kit. I had a bunch of African drums. Like bongos, in a way? Well, they're bigger than bongos. There were some about that size, but okay, I mean, like, some are kind of large. But yeah. they're just, you know, they're they're wooden carcasses with a you mm-hmm. know stretched skin over it. And and then uh, in Nigeria, they had things called talking drums, too, where the, that are where the, the, the skin draped over the wood is actually um, held together on both ends by... Um, string um or hide that you know rolled into string and what you do is as you play the drum with a stick you actually press the strings around it and it makes the and actually they're talking drums because you can actually make them say words you can create language out of it that's incredible that's crazy yeah. so you started a band when you so, were very yeah, young so when we were actually on tv um uh i had one little moment on tv and yeah i was drumming so my first. So that was the start. That was my start. Was actually yeah, I, and I never. It's funny because I, I never really have been asked that actually, and that's <laughs> I'd forgotten that that's the case. So I you did, were say you were age, ten or eleven. Was uh, music in your family? Seventy-one. Like believe. were your parents musical? Or very, did, very musical. But both. that wasn't their career. No, <clears throat> but they met in they met in choir, and my mom was a to this day she's a very good pianist. My dad's a good piano player. My mom reads music really well she can play a pipe organ too with pedals dang uh, organ is hard to play and then she grew up playing i think clarinet and dad also grew up playing trumpet you're from a family of savants Not really, no you no. really might be no yeah you, no you could, met him no no I'm no sorry. no you might be <laughs> uh you are definitely from a family of savants i don't think savants know they're savants though i think that's the key here it's like you know the like what do they say? Sometimes she doesn't know she's that song. She don't know she's beautiful. She don't know she's beautiful. You don't know you're a savant. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, you just I think know all, so much stuff. You know, really, it. I don't. I don't know, Caroline. That's very sweet of you. I just. I think the, the thing that, might be different is you know if you grow up in a lot of different places, you end up having sort of, uh, a variety pack of ideas about. Are you, you know. so glad that you got to grow up all over the world? I am. Yeah. I mean, I know that when I was a kid. Sometimes we used to fantasize. Um, I used to fantasize about the kind of small town America life that my parents had. You know, who grew up. My mom uh, grew up, and her dad was a, had a dairy store. Uh, my father's folks. My da- he, my grandfather was a farmer. And I think even when I first got to Nashville, some of the first recordings I ever 
<clears throat> did that <clears throat> sounded real country or that leaned into kind of really an upbringing I didn't have was about fantasizing about an Americana existence that... Interesting. You know, there was a song that the very first... I had a lot of record deals that didn't happen. So how old were you when you moved to Nashville? So I, I went to college and I finished college. Um, and I was a year older than everybody because I'd been held back in Italy. You know, I mean, I, I didn't... When I was in Saudi... I was held back in Saudi Arabia when I... So I was, you know, I graduated uh, at 19 and then went to college. So I was a little bit older... Um, so I really, the whole thing happened later for me. I didn't even get into, I didn't get serious about music until college. Really? So you just were in bands enjoying it, but you didn't know that was going to be your profession? I was never in a band. And, you know, well, from, your first band with your Pakistani friend. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's right. And then you were also yeah, in a band right, with your Pakistan. sisters. <laughs> you also had a little band with your sisters called, uh, uh, you had Harmony. Red Wing. Harmony and then Red Wing. Well, th these are all stretched over a very, very long period of time, so... The band with, yeah, the, I, I played music with this kid, Navid. Um, but then music throughout up into high school and into college for me was periodically I um, got really interested in guitar. And, and then I studied guitar a little bit, again, kind of intermittently. And whenever I took up the guitar and developed, was developing my own style of playing, it for whatever reason i always wrote songs it's just like that became those two things were completely linked. hand in hand yeah, songwriting they, and playing guitar and playing guitar and then um but i i wouldn't say i took it particularly seriously never thought of it like professionally i just i remember when i was in the philippines at 15 i was lucky enough i i took lessons from a guy named sammy Klimako, who was a big rock star in the philippines at the time and he was great and then when he kind of, uh, and then briefly I went to a guitar institute when I was in the Philippines, nice. which is really wacky because it was a guitar institute in the Philippines. My teacher was Japanese, and he was teaching. Your life is a movie. Can but we make was, a movie about? Have was, you written a musical about your movie? No, life? no. <laughs> That's your next one. But he taught uh, American finger, uh, four finger roll kind of technique, and it's a particular technique that I, you know, use to this day and. So you have a lot of influences in your guitar playing. I do, actually. World I think, influences. I think I, think I have, um, you know, uh, Paul Simon's guitar playing. He was the guy that played that uh, finger style. He was probably, I mean, he and James Taylor are probably my favorite finger style players. But um, I also love rhythmic groove guitar. And so um, that would, you know, I don't know where I got, you know... Um, Maybe Richie Havens, that kind of real, you know, kind of just <laughs> groove. And um, and I loved Bob Marley, and I loved, you know, a lot of Afropop, too, where rhythmic ideas are, are used um, in a different way. Then you bring all that to country music. So you get serious about it in college, and then you go, okay, I'm moving. I know you go to L.A. for a minute, and right. then you decide to yeah. relocate to Nashville, and you're like, I'm going to do this right. in Nashville. You get to Nashville, you get a publishing deal right away, and you get mm. a song cut by Winona, Only well, Love. That takes that takes a little while, so because, I mean, that's a only few— Only Love was a big song. Yeah, so that's a few years away, but, yeah, I get I get signed. I'm only 25. I get here in 80s, but I get here in 86, so I don't get that cut until 90, I think. Okay, so you're here like four years. Yeah, and then before then, I actually have uh, I actually have a record deal. On Columbia? No. So Who is here, it on? Well, here's the thing that you oh. wouldn't necessarily know, because um, I had um, several 
record deals. <laughs> How many record deals did you have? I think Columbia was. I'm honestly, I have to go through them, but I think it was the fifth. There okay, was let's start at the beginning. MTM. Uh, there was an art. These are now. These are development deals. Okay. Okay. So this is a different time. Development so, deals mean they sign you and they're going to just watch you develop, to help you grow. Well, they put money into you. And right. The, the old, the classical development deals that we don't see much of anymore. Right. Was that they would, you would sign a deal and the deal would sort of, uh, also you'd be required to sign something that you're going to sign the larger deal. Okay. Right. So you're already kind of chained to it. And then they're going to give you like 12 grand or 15 grand. And you're going to co-cut like three to four sides. And this period is going to, it's going to happen over a, you know, a six to nine month period of time. Then they're going to have the first option. They're going to have the right. They, no one else can make a can decision. They can take on you them. or they can decide to let you go. That's correct. And if they take you, then the other thing clicks in that the, the basic deal that you've already, you kind <laughs> like of already, record deal. you've already agreed to. So it's the development deal so then still turns to do a contract. to a record deal. In theory. Right. Or not. And so okay, I had so a series of or nots. Two were the or nots. So actually the first or not is not fully my fault. <laughs> the uh, first or not and the first real record deal was Mary Tyler Moore <gasps> Records. Right. You knew Mary Tyler Moore? I, did, I never met her. I was signed by Tommy West, who was Jim Croce's uh, producer. And <clears throat> he was at this label. And the label had Julie, Judy Rodman and the Forrester sisters. Oh, wow. And Trisha Year was, uh, wow. was, uh, was the, um, actually, she was the, the gal at the front desk. No way. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was the front desk she worked at? Yeah. No yeah. way. And they had Paul Overstreet. So did you see Trisha Yearwood at oh, the front yeah, desk? Oh, yeah, of course. Absolutely. She was like answering <laughs> phones. <laughs> yes. And I, and I remember, I remember somebody saying, you know, she, by the way, she can really, she really sing a demo if you need anyone for a demo. So if you got a if you got a chick song or you know you get Trisha. You know. No, I remember. In wow, fact, how I cool s- that you were in that part of history. I tell you, I saw I I met Garth for the first time. I'm like I'm the last person in Nashville who's been around this long to meet Garth. But I because I working on a movie uh, that that uh, we needed to interview, and he was gracious enough to give an interview. And um, we met at the Bluebird for this uh, for the filming of this thing. Just it was just a few weeks ago, and I was like, I remember Trisha when she was at the front desk, and you know, I just it was it's wild to have the you know that when you're much around a long time, life. you just you've seen a lot of different people. But yeah, no, I was on that label, and they had the reigning um, female vocalist of the year was Judy Rodman. So it was real serious company, and they their publishing side because they took up part of my publishing. That's the way those deals were those mm-hmm. days. You had to give up, you know. But they had, I remember they had Foster and Lloyd's Faster and Louder album, uh, which, you know, became a seminal kind of country uh, rockabilly. I mean, if you're not familiar with that record, Faster, I mean, that period of time, the late 80s, I mean, that's when everything went exploded. You know, because yeah. you were to, in the big middle of it. Well, I was, you know, but just just, you know, dumb as a stone about it. I mean, in a way, I mean, <laughs> who isn't though when they're in their 20s? Well, I didn't know anything, you know, <laughs> and I even remember I had a guy once. I won't say what his name is, but in my first publishing deal in Nashville, I had one of the head guys called me into his office and said, you know, you should leave. Nashville? You should leave. Yeah. He said you should leave. And he's like, you know, you're not hillbilly. And uh, what we do here is make hillbilly music. And, you know, he says, you should you should go. And I remember he said to me, he goes, you know, you know who you remind me of? And I was like, oh, God, you know. And I said, oh, who? And he goes, well, you remind me of uh, Dan Fogelberg. And I was like, wow. Well, you know, thanks for that. And he goes, that's not a compliment. Because <laughs> he was saying that's not going to make any country he goes, music. He goes, I hate Dan Fogelberg. Well, why does this guy get to be the authority? Well, he just was at the time without <laughs> telling you who he was. I mean, he had a he had a lot going for him. Now, I'll tell you this about this guy. Years later, 
uh, after sticking it out as I did for yeah. a long time, and then and you, then beginning to have hits. And, and you, let's not forget, you did ultimately win Song of the Year with "God Bless the Broken Road" yeah. for Rascal Flatts. Win a Grammy. We got to get into your song resume yeah. here after right. this because it's huge and amazing. Yeah. He actually, I remember seeing him on the street um, walking around Music Row. And he did. He came up to me and said, by the way, he goes, I just want you to know I was wrong about you. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, little victories in life, you know. Yeah. But on the other hand, he was well, like, all... after you've won a Grammy, gotten all these Dixie Chick songs, never was. Oh, I was wrong. Well, he <laughs> I'm was, just kidding. That's nice he, he said that. He was partly right in one sense um, in the in that, you know, it didn't come. I didn't grow up in country music. But I, you know, I had a couple things that I could hold on to. One is that folk blues are not very different. Not really, not to me. And if you're a, a lyricist and you're a piano player and you like guitars and you play mandolin and later you like to pick up the banjo, you're going to be all right. You know, you play you, all those instruments. Yeah, but not doesn't mean I play them all well, but I play a couple of them pretty well. But, it, I, you know, it was the right place to be. It, I think it was not the right place. Maybe as you were artist. ahead of your time. Because now or, country music's pretty wide open. Or solidly backwards. You know, I think oh. that a, a friend of mine, my, my dearest uh, co-writing buddy is Daryl Scott, and most longtime compatriot in this business. And he has said to me many times, he said, you're just, you know, you grew up in the 70s and really everything you do just sounds like the 70s. And Which I, is awesome. And that's kind of, that's kind of true. You need to write with Midland. The new band out, their whole oh, really? band feels like throwback 70s. Yes. Wow. I'm going to try to hook that up. Hook that it up, Caroline. Really a good combo. I think, you know, they say every 30 years, trends repeat. I'm telling you. So Maybe I'm going to come back into vogue. It's about it's about to be Marcus Heyday Part 2. Maybe. Marcus Hummus Heyday Part 2. Well, you know, you never, but you things never, continue. You know, you get, you know... I, it's been a it's been a while since I've had a number one. Um, well, you're probably about to have one with Blue Roses with. Um, oh, we are Runaway totally. Junes. Give it right here. Wait, yeah, folks, this is us booming our fist. Just pumping. putting it out there in the universe. That's right. Tell me though, why that first development deal wasn't your fault that you lost it? You never said why it wasn't. Oh, your fault. Uh, that's right. Yeah, because it was there was a series of them. There was uh, RCA and and uh, and I was with the original Arista label. So you had major labels. And RCA I was Pound on RCA. No, they were all majors. Yeah, they were yeah. Made Liberty. Uh, I literally uh, the fifth one was Columbia, and then, and they and that was Paul Worley and Scott Simon, are friends of mine. And there's an old saying that you know if you stick around long enough, your friends become record presidents, then you get deals. But <laughs> that's kind of what happened to me. And and then and then unfortunately, right in the middle of the development of my album, they actually they left. And so I, as you know, I stayed very close to both of them. But I spent you know Paul Worley cut more, which hits actually for probably me than, led to a great relationship with him when he started producing the Dixie Chicks. Oh no, that uh, it uh, the a number of things. The Sarah Evans. Oh, and he produced Sarah Evans. He produced Sarah. Sarah, um, Which you had a huge hit with Sarah Evans. Yeah, Born to Fly. Born yeah. to Fly. That was her first single, right? No. One of the first. Her first big song was Three Chords and the Truth. Oh. And that was her first uh, solo album, but it was, but Born to Fly was the first one. I mean, that was nominated. I will never forget when that, that video came out. song of the year. I mean, it was a serious. That's when I, I, I like put, to me, that's when Sarah Evans got put on the map. She well, was, that was so a, beautiful. That was a groovy record, too. Yes. And that song was amazing. Yeah. And Paul, see, the other thing about Paul is that Paul always let me play guitar um, on on the record. So. You know, when we did Ready to Run or we did Born to Fly, you know, that I got to play acoustic guitar, do the do that little groove thing, you know, and I remember It changes we, the whole song cuz no one can play guitar like you. Really, they can't. Well, thank you. I mean, I I guess I mean, I think there is something there is something about it, you know, that some songwriters and I'm, I'm not at all the only one. There's I mean, there's many who they're really tied to the instrument that they compose with and 
And yeah, it, it's a, a part it of the song. It is true that sometimes to get that actual feel, you know, you you do go to the kind of the source of whatever that the yes. central groove is. Same way, like a vocalist, certain vocalists, yeah. you know, have such a distinct sound that only that person can see That's it. Right. It's the way you play guitar. Well, I tell you, I know that. Like again, uh, a guy who's even he's got more instruments and. And I think he's farther along than I am, I think, uh, is Daryl Scott. And I, I know that through the years that often when people would cut his songs, they'd like, they'd cut, I think when Travis Tritt cut uh, Great Day to Be Alive. Oh, it, I loved that song. He was smart enough to bring Daryl in Did Daryl write that song? Oh, yeah, 100% that one. He wrote that song all by 100%. himself? Yeah, yeah, it's on his album Aloha from Nashville. And... um but he also was the other writer on Born to Fly. So, wow. and actually, we got a cut yesterday. What? With, uh, it's called "I Need a River," and um, I wrote it with Daryl. And it's very, it's very, it, it, and and Sonia Isaacs actually. And Sarah had called me, and she's got she's cutting a new record this Sarah week. Sarah Evans. Uh huh. So you got and, a cut with Sarah Evans yeah, yesterday? Yesterday, yeah. <gasps> Whoa! Yeah, and congratulations. It's of, but it's one of my favorites, and I keep a running list of like I got like twenty, thirty, forty songs, like a list of your favorites. Yeah, that haven't been. Cut. That's smart because sometimes you might forget if you don't keep it on the top right. of your head. That's right, and then you go back, and I've realized that, I mean, periodically, you know, you, you're you're long enough in the business, people will occasionally. I mean, I I would love it if Blake Shelton and some of these other the more bro country guys, if I knew them and they wanted my to hear my songs, I don't know them and they don't ask me for them, <laughs> but you know, but a Sarah Evans will, and there are different artists that will come my way, and they'll say, you know, and I can pitch. And I'll look and back. And you know at, your list. But I keep them. And, yeah. I've, and she actually wrote me a note and she said, you know, I need another song that's sort of like it lives in the land of Born to Fly. And I was like, got it. <laughs> oh, my God. I can. <laughs> and I went back and I was his. like, it was on an album. The last album I did, Daryl actually produced an album on me called Rosanna. And I picked, I cut a few hits, but then I cut a, a bunch of stuff that, that I that I just do, that are new songs that I dig. You that know, you just love. That I love. And that I, I've always loved that song. And uh, and I've always scratched it with kind of a head scratcher. Cause like why did, has why, it not why, found its yeah, home yet? Yeah, and I would try to pitch it. I've, I've pitched it before. I think I've actually pitched it to Sarah before. The difference Maybe was Maybe it just that wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right time, plus it wasn't direct. I think I probably went through a gatekeeper. And in this one, she just, you know, as she does periodically, she'll just sit, come right so to me and So much better to be able to pitch directly to the artist. Yeah, yeah, and you get an immediate answer, you know. Yes. Or immediate silence. If yes. You, if, if nobody says anything, you know what that means. Right, it's a no. <laughs> that, that'd be your country western I want to no. run through some of your songs okay. you've written. Okay, so you wrote Alabama Cheat. Cheap Seats, which I freaking yeah. love that song. You've written songs for How Catch Em, Patty Loveless. What did you write for Patty Loveless? I wrote Over My Shoulder is a song I uh, wrote for Patty. I love Patty and, uh, and Roger Murrow, I think, was the other writer on and that. And you, you wrote for the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And yeah. then you've also, so you broke onto the songwriting scene with Only Love for Winona. Yes, yes. Amazing. You've cool. also written, wrote One of These Days for Tim McGraw, uh-huh. which went to number two. Yeah. One of these days you're gonna love me. Yeah. That song. But you got to go R and R. It went to number one in R and R. Okay. The reason you have to count that. It is. Is that I count those things because BMI gives you a cup. Yes. And I was reading a thing recently. Somebody, I was somebody, I was was doing some show and I and it said like, I don't know, it said like three number ones and I was like, hey, come on now. Come on now, give me. The, <laughs> where did that song come from? Because that is one of the sweetest, sensitive, most sensitive, and like, it's yeah. kind of like almost. Not like anti-bullying song, but it is like... Well, it is, really, in a way. It is. Yeah. I I remember when that song came out, I bought the whole album for that song. I didn't even know you then. That's sweet of you. Well, you know, that, and that was the center, that was the the hub on the 
you know, with the spokes around it for my album, the album All in Good Time. I remember, you know, when we first started to build that record, I was like, one of these days, every song has to relate to this song. Did you know that song was important? Yeah, I knew. I mean, I, I did. I, I tell you, the one I didn't know was going to be big was I on that same album, the original, the first piano version of Bless the Broken Road. And, and when God Jeff, bless, and that has an interesting story because. Yeah, and when Jeff and I wrote it, you know, Jeff, Jeff Hanna. Okay. I, I was on piano. And when he, he had gotten back from his honeymoon, and so that whole rolling, the, the very specific piano part that's on it. Um, is is central to the song when the Dirt Band did it, and the point of the of that writing that song was to get on Jeff Hanna's record. So I had sung at his wedding. I sung "Only Love" at Matresa Berg, who's another great, huge famous, songwriter, Hall of Fame songwriter. Jeff Hanna, their wedding. They went on a honeymoon, and I knew that I was going to get to write with him on uh, when they, when he got back. And I I'd had this conversation uh, at a bar with this guy Bobby uh, Bobby Boy. Um, who just had, you know, my recollection is just was such an inspirational kind of interesting thing that he said about his life that I wanted to make that. And he uh, said, God bless the broken road. No, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was, it was really talking about, um, new, he was, it's, you know, it's one of those stories you almost don't want to tell it, but he was, he was talking, he was in the middle of, um, a hard time in his marriage, but he found this other person who subsequently began, you know, has been, they've been married, and, you know, for, mm-hmm. for years. And what he really said to me at the time was he was kind of talking about things he would do differently and feeling, uh, being honest about feeling bad about some things that had happened. But then he kind of, I, what I re- re- recollect of it is he kind of stopped right in the middle of it. And, and he just said, you know, I, when I think about it though, I know this person is this another this new person is the person i love and i was meant to love this is my soulmate mm-hmm. and so he goes I, I i don't know i guess i wouldn't change anything and that's what struck me about that's what i remember um it's not a, i mean it's not a huge it's not like some cataclysmic thing but but it inspired this whole song yeah which that song then this is what i love about nashville right. you wrote that song and not until like seven years later or was it longer? Oh, longer. Well, so like the nine? song was written. The song was first recorded in '93. And when did it make its way to Rascal Flats? 2005, well, five or six, somewhere in there was the release. And so you the wrote the song in 1993, and then not until 20 years. No. 15? 15 years later. I can't do math. So like 15 years later, about, it made... Whoever's listening to this, y'all do the math. Yeah, seven a and, lot of seven years. 7 and 5, 12. <laughs> 12. 12, 15, 20, yeah. tomato, tomato. So 22 years it, ago. <laughs> 22 years ago. It makes its way. So 12 years after you write... 24 years ago. I'm just doing math as we sit here. Yeah, so it's a long time it ago. It makes and, its way yes. to Rascal Flatts. That's right. And then it goes on to become Song of the Year. Yeah. And then it goes on to win a Grammy. Yeah. How crazy is that? A song that you wrote 12 years all the way now making it to the top of the top. You can't get bigger than Song of the Year or winning a no. Grammy. No, I mean, all I remember is uh, it was great. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I'd lost a Grammy once before. I, I lost for Ready to Run for Song of the Year. And, and it was. And Ready the, to Run for the Dixie Chicks was also was in a huge, huge movie. Yeah, it was. The funny thing is now there is a song that actually sat at number two in both of those charts, R&R and Billboard. In, the old, in those days, they used to, before they combined, 
it used to be that you had to get one or the other, and then that's when they give you the little silver cup from BMI. You'd, then you'd get a party and all that. And Ready to Run was, you know, was tough because it was massive. You know, and it. What movie was that? I'm with Julia Roberts. Oh, Runaway Bride. Runaway Bride. Runaway yes, Bride. Yes. But, that was so good. But that record, you know, there was all this attention to like what's going to happen with Fly because the first one, you know, went diamond. Diamond. And, that yeah, means it sells ten the first million. Album went album. diamond, and no one does that anymore. And barely. No one has. I mean, they're still the biggest selling female group in the history of. Uh, country music for sure but they you know we're, we're talking about a group that when fly went out i mean it you know it now it's like 15 million or something like that wow for a country group that really you know whose career in country kind of ended because they pissed off the most powerful man in the world i mean you have to you have to realize you know how big it was and i didn't see and then it they just abruptly ended but i didn't see it coming at all i mean i'm not talking about the president bush stuff but yeah. like the i knew that they were good and all but you know, I, mean, I knew that they were really good, <clears throat> and I. But you never, just never know what's going to happen. You don't know. I mean, I, and I did never got on the inside of the Garth thing, or the inside of any of the or the Shania thing. I didn't catch a wave, but with the with the chicks, I caught the wave. You caught the wave. You caught the wave hard. You know, and the, we had the you know first two singles. And then Cow would take me away. I mean, back Huge. to back, it was like. It was unbelievable. What was that time of your life like? Well, it was crazy, you know, and I, I remember I flew down to Dallas. I had my uncle. I used to spend time with my – I had a real uncle I was really close to. And um, I saw them perform, you know, I don't know how, 30,000 people. And and um, I'd never really experienced a concert where, you know, people look like they're having – they're falling out, like they're having a religious experience, you know, and to your songs – and um, it's it's heady. I mean, it's 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 trippy to see it. I <coughs> it puts into perspective some bad stuff too. I like what? Well, the last record deal I did was um, I did the Columbia record, and then afterwards I started a little record company, a digital company with Scott Simon called Velvet, Velvet Armadillo. I started to put out records, and I was starting to write theater, and and I'd make records of that, and so consequently, there's you know there's all kinds of Records. I mean, I still think uh, um, the sound of one fan clapping is probably probably the that and Rosanna are the best records I ever made. The first one I ever made was the sound of one fan clapping, which was almost picked up by EMI, but was not going to be a country record. Um, and then I met this guy Stuart Adamson, and he was a, and this this relates to my what I'm saying about twenty five thousand people screaming at you. You know, Stuart Adamson was uh, the lead guitarist and singer and the soul writer for the group it big country a scottish rock group in a big country dream stay with you like a lover's voice it's a huge massive worldwide hit came out about the same time as um, bono prior to that he'd been a guitar player for a group called the skids kind of a seminal punk band anyway this guy uh working class scottish guy right tall handsome dude brilliant guitar player like crazy right and he moves to Nashville. He's in the middle of a divorce, and he's had there's a lot of story. He's had many, many hits in England, but he's also been in and out of rehabs. And he's just a real character. And I meet him. Sony actually, as I'm leaving, introduces me to him. And about a year later, we became buddies. And we he liked to fly fish. I like to fly fish. And he used to come hear me play with my band, the Pretty Red Wing, because I have an ongoing just sort of relationship with a bunch of musicians, which sometimes we call the Pretty Red Wing band. Love it through the years. And uh, he loved our band, and he finally, you know, he's one of the great guitar players, like, ever, you know, rock guitar players. And he started bringing his Strat, and then he would get on stage, and we'd play, and then he finally said, let's let's make a record together. So we made an, uh, a record. That was your duo, right? Yeah, the duo called the Raphaels. 
Yes. Yes. So the thing about it is, though, is that in, in the relationship to the chicks is that, you know, Stuart was kind of starting up again. He was still opening in the summers for the Rolling Stones. That's okay? awesome. Then we put out, we make this album, and he fell off the wagon. So, you know, without without dragging this way too far down. Um, Just things got the best of him. He died. Oh. We released the album, and Dang. he. Uh, we went on our tour um, in Scotland, uh, England, and Ireland. And um, did you love this album y'all made? Yeah, it's a beautiful album. The Raphael's. It's called Supernatural. It's a fantastic album. And it's the Raphael's. It's, it's a the duo. Raphael's. Yeah, it's a duo, but it has a couple members. There were some some instruments. There were some guys from his band. I mean, there. Mostly, it's it's John Mock, John Gardner, Gardner who played on the Fly tour. Uh, and longtime buddy of mine, uh, Mark Prentice on bass, and Daryl Scott played a bunch of things, and then so and then it was toured, toured Europe. Well, we started to, and uh, and then he, uh, it got he, the best of him. Yeah, and he actually um, went into DTs, uh, on, uh, like uh, alcohol D- shock kind of thing. Okay, and we couldn't finish the tour, and then I waited in Ireland for him, and he was hospitalized. He went into a coma and. It was uh, very, very sad. Anyway, and, and again, I don't even talk about it too much, but the um, I got back to the United States. I saw him one more time, and and then he took his own life. Dang. Yeah. So, so it's terrible, and and I think for me that was sort of the that was the end of trying to get record deals. I tell you that. It closed by, that chapter for you. By then, I was thirty nine. I might have been I don't know thirty nine or forty two, and it was like I didn't even I wasn't even that crazy about being on the road, but this was like some weird dark Fellini film or something, you know, I make it was awful. Because the music was amazing, yeah, but yeah. then the rest of it was kind of Well it's dark. Dark. I mean, it doesn't get any darker. You know, a guy <clears> that you're <throat> close to, you know. And it occurred to me that, you know, he grew up of course a lot of people suffer from addiction and, you know, um I grew up in a family where that was part of our lives. And and then of course my wife's work is, you know, entirely in addiction. But, you know, he lost that battle and um but he's also a kid that you know, by the time he was in his early 20s, he was playing at Wembley. Wow. Okay, so while I was playing down at Douglas Corner, <laughs> no, I'm not no, right. I'm not dogging Douglas Corner. Right. I cut my teeth on Douglas and Corner. And that's just a little dive bar Mervin, in Nashville. Yeah, man, I, I love that place. But Wembley's like the biggest no, place you can play. he's playing for 75,000 people. Wow. And, you know, when he played, too, he was kind of a Scottish nationalist kind of vibe. I mean, in terms of the way people interpreted him, he was very Scottish. He could play a guitar and make it sound like a bagpipe. He was really a remarkable musician. But I've seen that band play, and people wave flags like they're—I mean, it's literally like they're going to war or something. It, it, it's like a revival. People it's a like huge deal, you know. Like he was a cult figure for a generation, in and I think the you know a lot of that is—I mean, a lot of that's really hard to to process. I mean, how, yeah, how do you process? I mean, how do you just go home like, oh, great, I'll take the trash out? Kind of the yeah. same, like you were saying with the Dixie Chicks—they blew up so big. It's so big, you know that that—that's the thing that. So you're asking, you know, like what? Um, what was that like? Yeah, it was heady, but it, it was a wave that wasn't my wave. You know, it was like I was riding it, but they were on the surfboard and they were going somewhere and I was just kind of there. It's part of my journey, mm-hmm. you know, and I love that I have to this day, you know, they they came, of course, as we all know, they finally have done a national tour. Now they're in around the world. And, and when they came through town, you know, I've remained really good friends with Marty, who I wrote those two songs with. And... um and I'm, on, you know, I remained friends with the group, um, and they got tickets for my kids and my wife, and we went, and it was 
crazy. You know, it was. I don't know if you're there. The but love was, for the Dixie Chicks is out of this. It's world. intense, yeah. And they're and they're up they're up to it. You know, in the mm-hmm. sense that like they go out on stage and you like you go. All right, I remember. You know, particularly there's this moment in the in the show where they they send the band away. Not that I don't love the band. I love the band, but they and then they they bring the band back, but in a you know a completely acoustic place. And so Emily and and uh, Marty are playing. They're you know they're very good musicians and everyone around them. And the kind of the way that the sound and the, you know, it's not just so massive, you can't discern it. You can hear the instruments. You can really hear them in their voices and stuff, and you go, holy crap. These guys These are can really, play. This is what roots country. These songs are great. This is what, you know, what it, this is the sleeping giant. Yeah. You know, this can sell. This is the kind this of thing touches that just people. takes over. And, and it's the kind of thing that brought, I mean, I got so many friends from where I went to school, like in New England and up. Everybody loved them. They didn't care a lick. You know, whether or not it was country. I mean, they didn't. And they brought. It's funny, too, because it brought a lot of people into country music who were like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Who's what? Yeah. You know, Sarah Evans records. What, Patty Loveless, you know, like, oh, it, Sons of the all Desert. All of a sudden, people what? are checking out all this music. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what. But you, when you look at that music now, if you think about uh, records now, if you listen to Fly, you have a Patty Griffin song. You have rock things. You have soul things you have you know it's very they were very there was an eclectic quality lyrics we're talking about cowboy taking me away is kind of a return to simplicity goodbye earl is a great you know I love that an, an amazingly funny uh uh piece of country writing you know um oh my god some days you want to dance it's just pure groove fun i mean it goes on and on yeah and uh that you know to some extent i mean not to be um Mr. Critical, because I don't, I don't I really, I don't really want to, you know, I, I think at times today, I think, and I'm not at all the only person who said that, but there, there is uh, a tendency towards, you know, things being a bit similar, uh, a, a little less diverse, and I don't think right. that's particularly Something, healthy. Sometimes things on the radio, pe- people think, oh, let's just try to get, match the hits that are out there, that's instead right. of making a whole work of art that is actually authentic to the artist yeah yeah well when you go to a writing sessions and i and you know i see young kids who are coming up in the business saying well i've been studying beats per minute you know assessing you know taking the top 10 hits the last year and then you know looking at it like you know like like you're going to analyze it but it's a soul thing (laughs) well to me it is and i get you know i get it like i know that that's one way to do i mean when the one of almost day one when I got to music out of college, I was at, at a studio in Carmel, California, and uh, not Carmel, I'm sorry, um, in the but it was somewhere in the valley anyway. And I won't name the guy's name because this is not a happy reflection. But <laughs> I remember him pulling me into the office and he said, "Well, what you need to do is just take the top ten songs on the chart, and this is in pop." And he said, uh, "You should, you know, write down the chord progressions." And then the lyric, and make, sh- and then get a little, uh, get a rhythm track that's exactly the same rhythm. Switch around the chords and take the basic subject matter and just make it your own. And he says that's how you write. Wow. And, yeah. So the you know, <laughs> and and listen, as a way of analyzing music that's popular at the time, of course that's you know yeah that's that's probably relevant. But it was exactly, you know, anathema to what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, I didn't care about any of that stuff. You wanted to write from your soul. Well, yeah. I mean, you could sit around, you kid, you growing up listening to Cat Stevens and Joni Mitchell and, and uh, you know, Jimmy Webb songs or, uh, 
you know, Paul Simon. I mean, those guys, they like, you know, recre- I mean, they created a language. You know, were they affected by things? Of course they were. Absolutely. We always are. But, you know, they were laying it out there. Neil Young records, oh, my God, sit around oh, in front of a speaker and listen. Oh, man, take a look at my life. He was like 24 years old when he wrote that. But who cares? It was great. It's just it's unbelievable. The- I love that. And I love that that is where you come from. And I think that is what makes so many people drawn to your music because it is so <laughs> soulful. It keeps me not entirely successful, too. No, it does. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? Speaking of success, so we've oh. had, okay, one of these days, Tim McGraw, Why Not a Judd, Only Love, Alabama, Cheat Seats, Brian White, Love is the Right Place. Yeah, I love that song. Number know. one's Cowboy Take Me Away, Ready to Run, Dixie Chicks, Born to Fly, Sarah Evans, and then Song of the Year, God Bless the Broken Road. I'm sure I am missing some. I mean, you are absolutely... Out of the world, yeah. Look at all the stuff I have written. Uh, uh, Winning a Grammy for Rascal Flatts. My eyes were better; I could read it. You've written six musicals, an opera. You have three off-Broadway shows: The Warrior, The Piper, Tut Tut. off-Broadway. You also wrote a children's book, Anytime, Anywhere. Mm -hmm. Wrote documentary, Lost Boy Home. I mean, there's so much with you. But I'm gonna have to wrap you up. Yeah, sure. Because you could literally, I could talk to you for 27. Oh, hours. That's very sweet. Because your life well, I'm excited to me, for you about what you're doing. Well, I'm just excited that I get to interview <laughs> you, that my job allows me to talk to someone like you, yeah. because you're so interesting. But I like to wrap up yes. with, with all of your life, <clears throat> all of these experiences, all of these countries, all of these artists you've worked with, all these record deals, all of these highs, all of these lows, yeah. like... Even your wife, her ministries, mm-hmm. the church, you yeah. have children, your sons. Levi, I know, he's getting into music. Yeah. He's awesome. He's doing y'all, great. Y'all wrote a great song together called Make It Love, which made a documentary. We just sang it last night. <clears throat> I love that. What was yeah. that documentary Andrew, it's in? Oh, uh, it's, a, it's a, a documentary called Two. Two. Yeah. 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 About Desmond Child and Curtis Shaw's uh, two sons. So that was a I love beautiful that. thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just even still scratching the surface. Your life is so deep and eclectic. Mm-hmm. I like to wrap up with leave your light. Give me some inspiration on how, how you've been inspired and how you would like to inspire others. Mm. Like, what is that? You got what hard does questions. Look like? You give hard you questions. You got good answers, though. <laughs> uh, listen, if you're writing, you know, it's, uh, you know, find yourself. I mean, uh, be connected to your work. I mean, I think... The thing that I tell younger writers, if I, I'm old enough now that occasionally I get asked to, you know, talk to groups and stuff, and I talk a lot about, for me, you know, I think it's exciting to be passionate. I think it's exciting to um, even consider that um, if things aren't very good economically in the songwriting business, I'm co-producing and scoring a movie right now called The Last Songwriter about the terrible attrition we've had in our business over the last 10 years, we've lost 80% of our writers. Um, and that'll be out of that. That's going to be a very interesting work, I think. Um, but it's, there's always, a, you know, one should always be heartened because um, writing is, it's a gift. It's a joy. And it's, it's really, to me, it's more of a calling. And I think that if you feel that way, you know, a little poverty, frankly, is not going to hurt you either. I mean, there's something to be said about if you if you can simplify your life and focus your passion on the work you do and um, make sure that it's honest. And, and I, what I mean by that is that 
you know, that you're connected to it. You know, every song doesn't have to be about your autobiography. You know, like, I can't write about a woman. I'm not a, I'm not a woman. <laughs> I can't write about African-Americans. I'm not African-American. No, if you feel connected, just make sure you're connected. Uh, that would be my thing. You know, there are a lot of ways that. to make a living in this business, all of which is great. I have, I have no, I wish no ill upon anyone, but... Um, if you've got the love for this art form, and it is an art form, then I say, you know, hold on to that passion and, uh, you know, just don't don't let that go, you know, because the world needs songwriters. And, and it needs, I think songwriters are kind of like professional dreamers. I love that. And we are, I mean, that's our job. I mean, our job is to go out and write, to be Leonard Cohen and write Suzanne or Hallelujah. Or that's That's what, we need, you know, um, and not everything has to be a, a ballad or novella, too. We need, um, you need, you know, we need those rockers, too. You know, but don't need... you feel like those songs that really touch people are the ones that come from that true place? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, they, uh, and, the, and the, the contrary is true as well. If something seems kind of thrown together like a, you know, like a demographic study or whatever that, I, I just I question whether or not it's going to have much impact, whether we're really going to sing those songs, you know, years from now, or if we're going to bring them into our lives, whether we'll, you know, laugh or cry or get married to them or sing them at funerals or, you know, these are, these are the songs you want to be a part of. This is what, this is what it is about. You know, this is because what you're doing is you're creating actual poetry for our time, you know, and it may sound, that may sound like, wow, you, you sure, you know, you, you know, this is actually it's just do 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 da da da. All I want to say to you, yeah, that's true. But I mean, you might as well um, accept the fact that our kids today, they grow up and they are, um, you know, they may not know Shakespeare. You know, they may not read uh, classical literature. They may, but they may not. But I promise you this: they're all listening to records and. Some of the best writers are really probably today are, you know, rap artists, I think, uh, just who are much freer, unless you have a Jason Isbell or something like that. And that is their literature. I mean, they yeah. may they may get they may read a Maya Angela book. They may pick up, you know, um, they may pick up uh, some some famous literature, some deep literature, but they are constantly uh, in, literally inhaling music. And so. Um, I think it's it's real important that you kind of take it seriously and and accept it as an unbelievably exciting profession. I love that. You know, I sat there last night. I'll just uh, end it with this. I uh, a good friend of all of ours, uh, Andrew Dorf, died recently, and you know he was uh, great songwriter. Wonderful, really wonderful songwriter, and really unique, really quirky guy. You know, um, he'd been a published poet, um, a real character. You know, and kind of. You know, he had his stuff like we all do, but I and I I remember you know every time I wrote with him, you know I was I was struck by his authenticity and his intensity, and um, so last night the community and there is a community here that's what's totally. so beautiful, they gathered, and a bunch of us who wrote songs with him, we just spent two hours playing his songs. Now some of these are you know big songs and. And then, but there were others who came up and played songs. And Levi and I had written this song, "Make It Love," I love that song. which was part of this movie and helped Levi get his deal. That's my son, and um, and it's a 
beautiful song. I mean, I, you know, and so much of it was Andrew. And I remember I was sitting there last night, you know, pretty late for me, and I'm listening to everything, and you can feel the flow of the poet. Like, there are every, all the songs were co-written, and yet... You can feel Andrew through all You can feel them. Andrew is literally in the room. <laughs> I mean, spiritually, figuratively, you can how, feel his however voice you want to look presence. at it. But his presence was there, and that presence was beautiful. And, you know, and that's a real testimony, you know, when you feel it in a room and I was looking out I'm a, the place was packed and all these faces and the lyrics are delicate but they're also broken and they're you know his life was it was kind of busted stuff you know and it's it, it's hard to listen to sort of in a way but then he's always there's always sort of a a weird screwed up light at the end of the tunnel I mean it's just a really interesting cat you know and mm-hmm. it and it's just it's flowing out over the audience and I the faces were they were like wide open like they were at church like it's coming in. And I tell you what, if that's not something, you know, if that's not important, I don't, you know, I don't know what it is. And if you don't think that's important, then, you know, maybe songwriting's not for you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That could be my final statement. I love that. Subject. Marcus Hummond, All right. you are one in a million. Thank you. One so in are a million. You, young lady. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much you. for joining me. Thank you. I hope you loved hearing from Marcus Hummond. Next week, I have Jimmy Harnon joining me. This guy is a record label guru. He is so fantastic. He runs Big Machine Records, which is what my husband, Michael, Hobby, and a thousand horses are signed to. And then he is EVP, which means executive vice president of all of the labels at Big Machine Label Group, which there are five. So he is running so much stuff. He is so talented. He also had a huge hit called Where Are You Now? Back in the day, he's one of the only record label executives who have ever had a hit on the charts himself. So he has so much insight to share. He's so interesting. We talk about everything, and I cannot wait for y'all to hear Jimmy Harnon next week. See you next week, and don't forget to subscribe.